Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Happy Friday and welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today I'm joined by a guy from Kentucky. He is a killer. He travels to multiple states, gets it done year after year. He is a big proponent of water access and uses that all the time. I'm talking about none other than Jacob Emery. Jacob, thanks for coming on the show today, man. Uh, thanks for having me on, buddy. Yeah, anytime. How's your day going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Tomorrow is, uh, well... Today is Thursday. Tomorrow is Friday. I'm fixing to have a four-day weekend and going to really pound the cameras pretty soon. Yeah, I'm doing the exact same thing. I just finally got batteries in all of them. I got the cards in the mail today. I had to order 30 new SD cards because I lost the bag of SD cards that I had. So I had to do that, <laughs> but uh, I'm excited to get out there and put cameras out. I know some guys are already getting pictures of good bucks. And down here, I would say that a lot of the deer are even up to, you know, right now it's June 29th. A lot of the deer are over halfway done growing, you know, maybe even more than that, maybe 60%, 70%. So sometimes you can get cameras out and get a really good idea of what's going to be in the areas. And I'm just, I'm really excited to get to that point. Yes, sir. Well, cool, man. So, you know, right now we were just talking off air and you are roughly 55 days out of your first hunt. You were just letting me know that you booked the Airbnb and you're all excited to go down there. And that's uh that's a Tennessee hunt, which is going to be awesome. Uh, so, so what I'd like to get into is, you know, let's do a sub 60 days out from season. What is your process? Because you're a guy that I just, man, I can, I can count on you killing deer. There's no other way to put it where, you know, I know that you're going to put the work in that needs to be had and you're very intelligent. You're very analytical and detailed, and you're going to find a way to lay deer on the ground. I really respect that about you. So I want to pick your brain and try to learn as much as I can from you. If that's all right with you. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you don't mind, I'm going to have my wife come upstairs. And if you could just repeat everything you just said, uh, tell her I'm intelligent. It would be news to her. Hey, you get one <laughs> chance of that one, buddy. <laughs> oh, man, I love that. But uh, but cool, man. So let's dive right into it. So it's June 29th as of the day that we're, that we're recording. This is going to launch in a week. So it'll be early July. So what is Jacob Emery's process this time of year? What's the things on your mind right now? Uh, typically, it's food. 100% I'm looking for that that early season food source, which around here where I'm at, is it's always going to be the soybeans. Uh, the deer will hit the corn a little bit when it's popping out of the ground. They don't really mess with that corn. It's more of a bedding area, in my opinion, until it starts getting that real sweet, tender uh, crop on it. For me, man, this, this time of year, it, it's all about just soaking cameras. I like to get my cameras out most of the time, right around the lake late part of May and I've been slacking a little bit. I've had some, I'd say about 25% of my camera soaking for a while now. Got a lot of work to do in the next, let's see, five days or so, but I like to start at the food, man. And, and whether that's using my eyes to locate a couple deer or, or just let the camera soak and coming back and checking them, it's always on the food source. And if it's not a food source, I am predicting somewhere uh, maybe the deer are coming from like a creek crossing, something I'll use, heavy beat down trails coming off of some topo, whatnot, things like that. Just trying to get a beat on one. Yeah. And I follow a very similar routine this time of year. And I'm also doing a lot of anticipating food sources. Are you doing that too? I know the, like you said, your number one food source is going to be soybeans down there. So are you running cameras in areas that you don't think are going to be very good yet, just in anticipation of that shift? Or are you waiting until later into the summer to dedicate those resources to those areas. You know, I was thinking about that earlier, Jake, and, and honest to God, every one of my cam 
camera sets and scouting missions, they're all going to be dedicated to that first five or six days of season. I mean, I will work from the last part of May until the day before preparing for that first week. Like I really believe in everybody out there has to understand, like I, I go to Tennessee for the early season hunt. I've lived in Kentucky my entire life. You know, early season to me is the first weekend in September. Now you guys in Ohio, it's later, it's later in Missouri and whatnot. The velvet's off by that point. Um, and what y'all don't, under, some people don't understand is like, I feel like the best time to capitalize on a of real big deer is that velvet time. Um, if you can catch him on a pattern and get the conditions right, the wind right, and just get him in a really killable spot. Uh, so all my camera sets and all my scouting is dedicated to that first week. Now, I may leave a camera or two on, say, like a hub scrape like you're talking or a really well-known community scrape. Honest to God, I usually wait until about the mid-September, late September to make the switch and start scouting where the macrons are dropping and stuff like that. Uh, moving some cameras over to scrapes, over to uh, you know different travel corridors. Of course, the beans turn yellow. Everything changes. The velvet falls off. Everything changes. So it's kind of funny to me. Sometimes I sit back and think is like, man, I spend like a hundred something plus days to to hunt a deer that's going to be maybe the same for two or three days. You know, I really relate to that, believe it or not. And I'm sure that probably shocks you a little bit, but up here in Ohio and in New York, it was pretty much the same way for me where I get on a lot of these early season white oaks and they just get hit so hard that they dry up really fast. And so I do the same thing. I'll spend all spring, all summer running cameras, anticipating these white oaks, and I'll get into these areas. And I have a very short window of opportunity. You know, Ohio opens up the the last week of September. It could be midway. You know, it could be like five days before October. Or it could be a day before October, just depending on how it sets up. But I only get like a week long period, and let's say maybe maybe a week and a half, maybe ten days total where those deer are on that white oak pattern before they start shifting around. And there's a lot of factors for that shift. They'll shift because there's a new white oak flat that heated up. They'll shift from the red oaks. Uh, there's a there's a ton of things going on there. But man, if I don't strike in that seven to 10 day window, I struggle all year. And I'm pretty sure I've told you that before where I'm putting all my eggs in that early season basket a lot of times. And I just have a ton of confidence in that. I have so much confidence in it that I'm willing to take that risk every single year. Because I feel like more times than not, it's going to pay off and it's going to be in my favor. But yeah, I mean, it's it's the same thing here where I have a very short window and then I go into almost scramble mode trying to come up with a plan of attack. And it's probably surprising to hear with the fact that I run cameras on hub scrapes a lot too, but it just depends on the system. If it's a system that only has white oaks and doesn't have reds, that hub scrape's only good to me for so long. It's not really... A lot of times those hub scrapes, when the food dries up, aren't as good, even late October, because the deer have switched over into a different system to inhabit an area with better food. And so it's it, it's a very short window for me. Uh, so, so that first little window that you have, are you still seeing those bucks come out into those beans in daylight? Can you target those deer in Kentucky on the opener and beans quite often, or do you have to be back into the cover a little bit? Um, you know, that, that's that's another thing I've been thinking about, you know. You're so good at finding these like beds and, and where these deer are up in the points of the topo and based off of wind and whatnot. And I have tried my entire life, not my entire life, but very, very heavily the last few years to kind of get a grasp on that. And I'd be lying if I said that I just don't, I don't see that happening where I'm at. You know, these deer down here could be out in the middle of a thousand acre bean field living on the edge of an irrigation ditch. And that's where they're at all summer. It, it's, it really makes it a pain in the butt. Yeah, it, it sounds like it would. So walk me through that process. We're going to circle back a little bit here, I think. So you're out on a bean field with cameras and you catch the deer that you want to chase or a couple of good deer in that area. What's your process look like once you have that photo of that deer? And actually, to go back even a little bit further, when are you checking your cameras? Are you going out and pulling your SD cams like every couple of weeks or every month? Or you let them soak until a couple of weeks out of the opener? What's your What's your theory there? Man, with, with the job I have and three kids, there's no real set time to when I check them. I mean, I'm always going to let them soak at least a couple weeks. Um, cell cameras are a little bit better about telling you when you can, you know, when you should pull them and when you should leave them. It's anywhere from two to two weeks to a month. I've got to get out there and check. I mean, I, I'll set a camera and I'll get home and be like, mm, wish I could pull that card. You know, <laughs> that's just, that's just the way it is with, in my head. But um, 
when I find a deer on camera, um, the first thing I want to do is I try to keep a lot of cameras with me. I, I like to let them all get out and soak, but I know it's, I don't know if you get into this, but the minute that I find a good deer, I've got all my cameras out. I'm like, crap, I've either got to go buy more cameras or, or wish that I had more with me. So I try to keep about 10 to 15 cameras with me at all points. And when I find a deer that I want to chase, I'm going to litter that area with cameras. I mean, I want to know if he's coming out on this side of the field one day, this side of the field the other day. Uh, is he just hitting this side because of the shade? Um, like I said, backtracking into the woods possibly to see where he's maybe coming to the field. And that's the thing is these cameras only tell you so much. So when I do find a good deer and I get excited about it, I start to focus more of getting out there and putting eyes on him. You know what I mean? Because if I get a picture of a deer on the edge of some beans and whatnot, um, I go and watch. There's been multiple times I'll get a picture of one, like right, like I've said, right on the edge of the field. And he stands up, you know, half a mile out in the field and he feeds around for two hours and he lays back down. He gets up and then he walks, you know, all the way to the edge. And for whatever reason, he's going into the woods, you know, closer to dark or versus in your mind, you're thinking the deer should be coming out of the woods. And then hitting the beans. So it it's really, it's find them with the camera. If you can't find them with the camera, like get out in glass and find one, then litter it with cameras. But the main thing is once, once I find one, I really just try to transition to getting out there and driving around and, and watching them as much as I can. As far as glassing, what kind of, kind of things are you looking for when you're glassing that deer? So say you found them on a camera, you're like, okay, I'm going to start dedicating nights to glassing this deer. What kind of things are you paying attention to in logging and trying to formulate a plan on? Uh, so a big thing that I've learned over the years with these deer in these beans and early season whatnot is they will get up and move in them beans well before dark some days. Uh, but when I do get the opportunity to go and watch them, you know, I'm I'm logging wind direction. I'm logging, you know, where he's at and which way he moved with the wind direction. Rainfall, I like to know the underhead or the overhead and underfoot. Um, I've really started kind of paying attention to that more recently and it's, it's really lining up with some of the things that I've been seeing and, uh, really the, the time that they get up. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me now. Say that you're, say that it's a buck that you know from a previous year and you have the data from the previous year. Is that, are you finding that that data year after year in those bean fields is very similar with a specific deer or is he is he more nomadic? And that might have something to do with the food sources shifting. Like, I don't know how many years in a row you have bean fields down there. I know in Ohio, typically it's one year beans, one year corn, one year beans, one year corn. What's that look like for you up or down there? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said that I had historical data with a deer. Almost all the deer that I kill, you know, it's, I get in a relationship with them that year and end up killing them at some point. I can't even remember a deer that I targeted and, and killed him, you know, f years later. And it might just be because I'm so scatterbrained and didn't pay attention to what he was, you know, a year or two ahead of that. But I see more of patterns, maybe not with the same deer, but the same areas. Like, like you said, they all crops alternate. A field that comes to mind is one, two years ago that I had just four or five really great deer using. And I mean, I watched them from afar. Uh, they did the same thing day in, day out, day in, day out. And then of course it switched to beans or corn the year after that and this year it's going to be beans again so that that's just kind of one of them things where historically that's where them deer like to hang out probably based on the surrounding things besides the beans but they just happen to be in that area because of that food source being what it is that year yeah that that makes sense and i i see a lot of that here too uh i can think of like i have a route that i drive almost every night glassing for deer and I will say that I've caught a couple of the same deer that have shifted fields and shifted their bedding areas based on the beans that time of year. Um, so here, when the beans turn yellow, we actually still get pretty good feeding in some of in some of these fields, and I can still glass the deer quite a bit. Do you see the same thing down there, or do they really shift out of it when they turn yellow? I've heard people talk about it both ways, to be honest with you. Here locally where I'm at, I've really... I don't see them touch them once they once they really turn yellow. Now, some parts of the field might be lower that word, you know, there some of them are still staying a little bit greener, but I really don't see them hit the beans once they turn yellow. Once that happens, it, it's back to natural browse and or a big thing that I notice is they will completely pack up. If you've got one field that's growing good, they're nailing it every single night. You're two weeks out from season and it starts to turn a little bit yellow. Well, guess what? You've got two weeks to figure out where they went and if there's another green 
food source, like them beans, if there's another field within, gosh, anywhere up to a mile, mile and a half, there's a good chance that they're packing up their crap and they're moving over there until they turn yellow. That makes sense. And so I'm driving around this summer trying to figure out what food sources are where. And that's something I've been doing the last couple of weeks. And what I've noticed is there's areas where the beans are a couple inches tall and there's areas where the beans are over a foot tall. So I'm assuming a couple of weeks in advance. So is that something that you're paying attention to? Like if you have a block with different age beans, are you paying attention to that and just recognizing that, hey, when this block that's further advanced dries up, I'm, I'm going to already have cameras preset on the bean field that's not as old? 110%. You took the words right out of my mouth. It, it'll be so aggravating to watch them on the same field A all year long, but I'll already have those cameras in place on you know field B and be ready for that shift. I mean, it's, it's almost like clockwork, man. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that throughout the years, you've gotten really good at gauging when that's going to happen too. Like you can look at a bean field and say, okay, in you know, two weeks, this thing's going to yellow up on me and these deer are going to shift over. So I got to make sure that I have those resources where I need them. Yep. That's actually a big part of my June scouting. So early June, I'm just driving and checking fields. Uh, I want to know what's planted. Sometimes you get lucky and rain or whatever will actually push the farmers back a touch to where they and I hate it, you know, for them because I have a lot of friends that are farmers, but they push that planting back on some of them beans and it makes for some really good early season hunts. I, I mean, I've been sitting over uh, a green bean food source at, you know, September 20th some days. And, and even though the deer may have dropped their velvet, if that food source is still good, they're not pressured, they'll still hit that thing, even with hard horn. I see the same thing with uh with cornfields quite a bit where if they get planted like if I, if I see cornfields around here planted late that are way behind the other ones and they're close to public I kind of get excited especially if they border the public and I'm like okay they're going to be bedded up in the hills and this corn's going to be standing come season and that's the primary food source like they might hit a hit a lone white oak like one single feed tree on the way to that field but I have a really good idea of the the direction they're going to travel at some point in that night and it just it makes it easy for me to run cameras, get them in the right spots, and try to just formulate some sort of plan on those deer. Right on. So another question for you, if we are a week out of season and you haven't located a deer, what does your process look like? Because a lot of what you're doing is finding that deer early and just gaining all that data and just, you know, analyzing that data and then making your strike. So what if you don't have that data? What if, what if you don't find the deer you're after until a week before season? Well, if there's anything that I've learned in, in the past, it, it, you cannot rely on trail cameras. So I'm not fixing to spend a week praying to God that something shows up in front of a camera. I sat on a saddle in between two great hubs last year, and I was one of the best mornings that I can remember in the woods. I, I believe I saw 20 to 25 different deer back and forth, six different bucks, had a cell camera on a scrape right at the top of the saddle, and not a single deer triggered that camera. So if I had been sitting at home on the couch, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, nothing's moving today. Whereas I'm out there in a tree and it's been one of the best November mornings of my life. So if I'm a week out from season and I ain't located a deer, I am covering as many miles as I possibly can with some optics. You know, the last two hours of daylight, I don't know. You, you know the process. It's just, uh, what is it? Speed scouting is what I call it. Yeah, me and me and Ethan were talking about that the other day, and this podcast hasn't launched yet. It's one of the Speed Series podcasts, but we were talking about, oh, somebody asked us about uh, about going in blind into an area and what we would do like specifically on an out-of-state hunt. And I thought about early season Kentucky, and to me, what was going through my head is I'm going to be doing the most efficient thing I know to do, and that is driving around with my vehicle and verifying where hunters are at, verifying where there's deer verifying, you know, what food sources are still active from the road, specifically ag sources. But there's, in my opinion, there's no better way to find a deer than with your vehicle because you can just put on so many miles. You know, like if you, if you go out into a random piece of woods and a 10,000 acre block, and you're like, okay, I'm going to hike around and find deer. That's great. I do that a lot, but that's, it's a whole day wasted to go in there. Not necessarily wasted, but it takes a day. That's a day process where you can drive around a couple hours glass bean fields and you can check 20 bean fields in a couple hours before dark on a day where there is a cold front and you're going to know most of the deer in that area oh yeah a, a big thing man not not and if you're listening don't think that we're talking about driving and just seeing these deer from the road 
I cannot express how important it is sometimes to get out of the truck and go check the field that you can't see from the road. If if I'm going on an out-of-state hunt on an early season deer, I'm finding a, a field, hopefully planted in beans. I'm going to run that west side of that field as hard as I can and look for the heaviest browse on them beans. Them deer typically like the west side, southwest side of these fields just because the sun sets and that's the first place on them fields that gets shade in the afternoon. And I just walk until it looks like a weed eater went over the bean stalks. Start looking for big tracks. Once you find that big track, I mean, you don't need any other information um, as far as knowing if there's a big deer in the area. Yeah. Now, are you worried about leaving ground scent in there when you're doing that at all? I'm not. And, and just because nine times out of 10, when I'm going to do something like that, I'm going in midday, you know, where it's hot, it's drier, probably. I don't know if you know Jacob Myers and Andrew Maxwell, the Southern Outdoorsman. They did a podcast, and it's probably my favorite podcast I've ever listened to with a canine trainer that trained the dogs for the academy. And he went over like how quickly your actual scent that you're dropping dissipates, whether, you know, when it's damp, when it's dry and whatnot. The more of the disturbance that you're leaving is the imprint in the ground where you're disturbing the ground. There's something that you're breaking up that's obviously like your foot is a lot larger than a deer track. You're breaking a lot more of the ground when you walk than a deer does. And that just throws a big red flag up to them sometimes. Um, but as far as the like human ground scent and stuff like that, I don't I don't pay no attention to that stuff. Now, obviously, I hunt the wind um, and whatnot, but I don't get too worried about that kind of stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you trekking, are you like running the edge of bean fields throughout the summer, checking for tracks too? hundred uh, percent. The browse is the biggest giveaway. When you start finding the browse, um, I look for the tracks and the, Josh actually is one of his favorite sayings of mine is, you know, that track is that buck's signature. Yeah, he can't hide that. Yeah. So when you're, when you're talking about the heavy browse, what does that look like? Because, you know, I'm not a bean, I've, I've hunted one bean field in my life. Like, what does that browse look like? So it's going to look like somebody just walked up to the plant and picked the very end of the leaves off. Almost to like, just imagine you took a, like a bean plant, so to speak, and just pulled almost every leaf off the top of that plant. And when, when it's really getting hit hard in an area, I mean, like I said, it's going to look like somebody took a weed eater to the top of about half an acre of beans. And when you're walking through that, can you pick that out pretty easy compared to the beans that haven't been browsed on? Like, is it a... Is it a multiple inch difference? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can almost, you can pick that out with a spot and scope from half a mile away sometimes. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a really good tip. So you can almost glass for browsing areas without even stepping foot in there. If you've got a vantage point, you can, you're not going to do that on a flat field, but yeah, for sure. Sometimes even summer scouting, when I want to get out there and, and get a little bit better, look at the deer, go out and take a few sticks and climb the tree with the saddle. And, uh, you really get a good look at a field like that. And it's, you know, like clockwork, you find where the beans look like a different color. You can tell the leaves are missing off of them and just wait for that area right at dark and one's going to pop out. That makes sense. So are you utilizing observation sits pretty much throughout summer as well, where you're not only sitting in your truck from the road, but you're actually getting out there with a saddle and a couple sticks? Uh, Yeah, I, I try to stick to the ground if I can, just because I'm not a very quiet climber sometimes with multiple sticks, but I would, I would say the observation sits get a little bit more heavy towards the end of summer, closer to season when I really want to key on exactly what the deer is doing, not just, you know, getting a picture of him. Say somebody has a bunch of big bean fields around, they want to go glass them. What's a good starting point? Like, do they stick to a specific like directional edge of that field more than anything else, like the West side or the East side or anything like that? I'm looking at my Onyx right now and I wish I could explain it. So like, say if you had a just imagine a square bean field. Let's just say it's a it's a mile by mile. So it's a 640 acre field. If you've got any kind of breakup in that field, so like say the, the woods comes out into the field a little bit, for some reason, I don't know what it is, they tend to kind of like gravitate towards that area. And of course, if, if you get them kind of features, uh, maybe mixed with like an irrigation ditch that comes out into it that provides a little bit of water, it mixed with that western northwest west and southwest side of that field where the sun is setting you're, you're wasting your time even watching the other side of the field nine times out of ten are you seeing does that correlate with the beans that stay greenest the longest as well oh uh, yeah i would say so for sure there's like a little pocket or like a little strip of edge that stays green more than anything else 
Yeah, it, it really correlates. And something I didn't point out was low spots in the field that do get a little bit more moisture. Those beans are going to stay green the longest and tend to be the best. There's bean fields everywhere around you. Are you finding areas that have multiple things that set up in your favor? Like, are you favoring fields that you can't see from the road or that have you know, clear cuts nearby or stuff like that. Like what kind of things are you stacking into these areas that you're prioritizing? You know, before you know of a deer, what's going through your head as far as that goes? The big thing for me is, is finding those nooks and crannies where the deer just feel comfortable. Now, you'll see some great deer, you know, right off the road and they'll just walk out there like they own the place and they don't care who's watching them. But some of these, you know, pro- or public deer that have uh, been pushed and pushed and pushed and bothered for years, they're picking the most secluded bean field. They're picking the backmost corner where they feel safe, they're bedding out in the middle of these things. Um, so for me, when, I, when I'm really keen in and trying to find these deer, it's it's all about seclusion for me. They, the deer just feel so much more comfortable in an area that they can't be seen if maybe they can't you know see the trucks and cars and whatnot driving by all day long. That's, that's kind of what draws me to them first. And, and like I said, you, you can't go off of this stuff all the time. You know, deer are all different. They do the weirdest stuff. So you're going to find some in some really odd spots and you're going to find some kind of where you feel like they should be, you know? So a couple examples, I've got a couple bean fields within a half hour of my house that I glass quite frequently. And the one is just a, it's a very narrow field. It's only a couple hundred yards wide and it's like probably a mile long. And I just, I never see good deer in there at all. To be honest with you, I haven't ever glassed a good deer out of that bean field, but I've got two other ones. The one has a big knoll and you can see like the, you can barely see the back corner. I almost, a lot of times I'll put the car in park or the truck in park and sit on the window, like over top of the truck, glassing with my elbows on the roof of my truck. And I can see that deer down in the bottom. And that's where I always would catch the biggest one is like way low. I always assume just from the thermal drop. I didn't really assume because of, of water making those beans better for them. But uh, I've got another one that's really thin and has the same thing. It's like rolling and you can barely see the back corner of it. I definitely find more good bucks in those spots. So there's something to that seclusion thing. Yeah, you know, we went through your process as far as bean fields in early season. And I know that you have a lot of success with that. But I also know that you have a lot of success later into the season, throughout October and into November in different areas that even out of state. So let's get into that a little bit. You know, we've talked about in-state Kentucky bean fields. Are you doing anything for your out-of-state hunts this summer to prepare? I don't do a lot of preparing as far as going and scouting whatnot. Like I do a lot of cyber scouting. Um, My big thing is putting yourself in a a high opportunity spot, a high opportunity time to be out there. Like my out-of-state hunts, like, I don't know if we talked about this at Mobile Hunters Expo or not, but like, I don't want to go out of state and hunt, you know, early October somewhere. That's just, I don't have enough time to find a good deer or, you know, get lucky and have one just come cruising by. So my big thing is going at the right time and getting in some of those areas that make the deer come to you. As far as your cyber scouting goes, what does that look like? What kind of things are you looking for on your map out of state? Like I said, I love the water aspect of it. And water does a lot of things for deer. Um, it gives them obviously something to drink. It puts a barrier in between uh, them and the, the two-legged monsters. Um, it's normally, normally creating some sort of edge and habitat diversity. And my favorite thing that it does all, it seems like every time I find that killer spot, it's, it's creating a pinch point and whether that's, you know, with more water, um, something they don't want to walk through or steep terrain. Uh, that's really what, that's the number one thing that I key in on personally anywhere, but especially out of state when I've got to get it done fast. When I'm thinking water access, a lot of times what that looks like to me is like a big lake or a very wide river. And I've never really dove into the smaller creeks and smaller rivers that you're finding. So when you're looking for some of that water access and some of those funnels, you showed me one in your map, for example, at the uh, Mobile Hunter Expo down in Tennessee. And to be honest with you, like I looked at your map and I didn't even know that that was an area that you could use a kayak. Like to me, it looked like a stream. So what kind of things are you doing on your map to verify that there's a possibility you can actually utilize water access in that spot? Some of it is just experience and and getting lucky and finding it, driving around, foot traffic, you know what I mean? Other times, you know, just as well as I do, all these other apps like Onyx, Spartan Forge, Google Earth, all of them give you a different look at something, you know? Onyx is kind of awful when it comes to the imagery and whatnot as far as everything being 
green, so it's really hard to depict out a creek. Some of the Spartan Forge stuff hasn't updated, and Google Earth is a, one of my favorite ways to figure out something. So if you're lucky enough and you've got the little Google car that's drove around, you can click the person icon and the road will light up. Well, if I come across a bridge that's going right through some public on a small river or creek and whatnot, I can click on that road and it will drop me down into the human view where I can look around and be like, oh, that's awesome. It's like I can park my truck right here, drop my kayak right off down in the water and be gone. Man, that's a killer tip right there. Works out all the time. That's my number one out of uh, out of state scouting tool is that Google Earth road view. Oh man, I'm going to be on that like crazy tonight. You just opened up a whole new thing for me. I've never looked at that from a hunting what? aspect before. Never. Not oh, one my time. God. It's crazy. I kill deer, isn't it? <laughs> I, I might. I get to tell people that I taught Jake Bush something. You taught me something good. That's There's been a lot of takeaways already. We're only 40 minutes into this thing so far. That's awesome. That is, uh, wow, that's huge to me. I mean, I can think of some areas that I drove multiple hours to go verify if I could actually put a kayak in or not and could have just probably Google Earth roadmapped it. That's what they call it, roadmap, right? I think so. I'm, I'm not really positive what they call it. Now, what, what you're going to find is you get all excited. You find it on Google Earth. And you're like, oh my God, here we go. We're going to click the person icon and you're in the middle of freaking nowhere and then nothing pops up. And you're like, well, crap. Now I've got to just go find out for myself, which, oh, well, you know, how, how on earth did people ever kill deer back in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Without technology. So a lot of these water access spots out of state, are you finding good areas and just using them historically year after year, you constantly evolving and adapting and moving to new areas. Because for me, I feel like if you find the right spot, the way that you're, you're kind of going about this, like you could just get into areas that might be historically good. Is that something that you agree with? It kills me because I'm kind of adventurous and I like to find new things and try new places. But like my spot that I showed you in Indiana, like I can't make myself go hunt anywhere. I don't, go scout anywhere in Indiana anymore. You know, I almost don't even run trail cameras over there just because of one, I like the the surprise of what's there sometimes, but the spot sets up so perfect for any wind, any time. And I let that place age like fine wine every single year. It gets pressured all around it with bow pressure. And then the guns kick in. And about that time is when I'm, I'm in there and I'm getting them deer pinching down within 50 yards of me. And I've never been in there and not had an encounter with a buck. And it's just, it's just one of those magical spots you dream of finding. And I've only ran into one person in there and I actually ran into him. I don't know where he parked. I meant to ask him that we still talk all the time, but you know, he's like, man, I've been back here 15 years and I just, I've never seen another human back here. And I'm like, that's awesome, dude. So we kind of coordinate and talk here and there and whatnot, but I don't think he's as crazy about it as I am. So I don't really see him in there a whole lot. Plus he's got other spots, but when I find a spot like that, I kind of just tend to gravitate towards it just because I'm, I know that it's going to produce. There's something to be said about that, man. And I think that, you know, I'm assuming you're like me and you do have backup plans for those areas that are in like a relative driving distance to that spot. And I kind of go out, I go about out of state the same way where, you know, I'm still building a lot of data out of state. Like I'm going to be building a lot of Kentucky data now and some really good Indiana data and Illinois data that I'm really excited about, hopefully eventually West Virginia. But I look at Kansas, for example, and I went out to Kansas and had success pretty quick. And I just found a spot that I just thought was, it was so bulletproof. It, there's not many trees. It was brushy. There's no people that were hunting that area where most of the sections that I was in were just getting hammered by people up to the point where there'd be like four to six guys in the same 300 acre piece. Or like one spot I saw multiple people carrying decoys. And so I found this little, it's like a little nook that it just doesn't look like it'd be good on a map. And I still look at it even after I killed I'm like, man, it just doesn't, doesn't look like you'd kill a deer there, to be honest with you, at least from my perspective. And I have a hard time thinking about going and sitting anywhere else. If I get in there and nobody's been there, like if I drive to that spot and nobody's been parked there, then I can't see a bunch of tracks in the dirt. And you know, it looks like it's been left alone. I'm going to have a hard time not sitting that spot every single day on the right wind. You know, that's probably not what most people would say, but I feel like when you find these high percentage areas or that you feel are going to be high percentage, you got to give them due diligence every year and then have backup plans ready. But it'd be, you know, you might as well go in there and try if you've had success and you just truly believe in it. Not only that, man, I just, those areas, something about going back where you've killed some great deer and just reminiscing and thinking back and whatnot, it's 
relaxing and enjoyable. And it really makes you more confident walking in there every time too. Knowing like, Hey, I've done this before in here multiple times. There's no reason I can't pull it off again. Oh, I completely agree. So to play devil's advocate real quick on that, how long would you sit there and not see deer or action before you decide to give up and head somewhere else? As far as days or like hours? Uh, let's do, let's do days. I'm going to do it on a daily basis here. Um, <laughs> it'd take me a solid three days before I, I was like, I don't know what's happened. If something's changed to kind of pull the pin and, and go somewhere else. And even then I wouldn't be moving very far. It just, it just sets up too good, man. In the past, what I've done is I've been like hyper mobile, I guess is a good way to put it where, man, if I get in a spot and I'm not feeling it in 20 minutes, I'll hop down and I'll move and then I've had deer run right by the cameras that were in that area a half hour later. I'm like, man, if you would have just sat still or even on <laughs> even a couple of days, like how many times I'm sure everybody has this story where they're like, yeah, I hunted this spot five days. I went back to work and day six during the rut, that giant buck showed back up in that spot in daylight. And you're just like, man, I just, I think that sometimes like it's, it's cool to be mobile and it is very efficient and effective, but I do think that there's, it's always good to think about not being as mobile too. And it's just, you know, oh, yeah. something to think about. There's- it's something that I think about a lot. I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit. I've started to dabble in it and I'd like to uh, just hear about your setup. Like, let's start with your setup for water access and how you've developed that throughout the years. Uh, man, starting off when I used water access, I mean, I, I dabbled in it in the past, you know, 10 plus years ago uh, with some old canoes and kayaks like my dad had around the house. And it wasn't too serious back then. I mean, I think about this earlier like there's a point where you become like a you're you just you just a hunter like i'm just gonna go hunt you know and then there's that point in your life where like okay i want to get serious about this uh and that happened for me about i don't know seven or eight years ago um but i started off with a a sit-in kayak and really just using it to get out and just see new places and whatnot It's, it's not ideal it's a good way to flip your kayak get wet uh once water gets in it doesn't get out so I've actually evolved and uh, ended up picking me up in a Sin 12T, and I almost hate saying that because um, I can't tell you how many of them that I've sold for people, and Bass Pro does not know that I exist. So uh, it's a 12-foot kayak. I've kind of rigged it out to where it fits everything for me perfectly. I've got my bow holder on the front slash gun holder. Uh, my backpack always is in the back with me, whether I'm just taking in the minimalist stuff or one-sticking I've always got my frame pack with me in the back uh, in case I want to, you know, quarter one up. Um, inside of my live well, I have a kill kit inside of two Ziploc bags. You know, of course, toilet paper, because I'm telling you, there's no other time that you'll have to use the bathroom more than when you get on the water. Of course, my life jacket. And, um, you know, when I kill a deer, I have the space on the front of that thing to gut him and lay him on the front of that kayak him out whole which was the goal entirely when I bought the thing. Like I just, I wanted that epic feeling of paddling out a giant deer. Like that's, you know, why I wanted to do it. I wanted to go out and hunt these hard to reach places that people aren't really getting to as much as they would be if they could walk there. And, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's worked out pretty good so far. Oh, it definitely has. I mean, it's, you're very successful because of it. And it's just such an, to me, it's like an adventure allure almost where I'm, I just, have this like i can go anywhere boots on the ground but i haven't dabbled very much in the kayak game and i just feel like it's it opens up a whole new adventure to me and it really excites me so getting to your setup what are some mistakes that you've learned that have that have made you evolve that setup like uh like not having a bow holder not having stuff in your live well or or things like that um it's just knowing and trusting your equipment and how, and just really getting out there, play around somewhere shallow, <laughs> um, organize your gear. That, that's a big thing is when you're using a boat, a canoe, kayak to get somewhere, you're trying to be stealthy. You know what I mean? There's nothing that's more non-nature like in the woods than plastic banging or metal noise. So that's, that's the big thing, man. It's just, it's know your stuff and learn to be quiet, learn to be efficient. Are you taping a lot of stuff? Like, are you like, I can imagine if I had a kayak that any surface that isn't underwater, I'm pretty sure I would have stealth stripped like every single thing. Are you taping certain things like your bow holder or where your uh, where your paddle would hit the side of your kayak or anything like that. Uh, my, so my paddle has like two like 
foam grips on it and I've got those taped uh, or not taped, but I've got electrical tape around them to where they won't slide up or down right to where if I do hit the kayak that I'm just hitting it on the foam part. As far as anything else, man, it, it's all just pretty quiet. My bow holders, some of the Comlin rubber grips, and it just pulls right off of those. And uh, I'm always wearing rubber boots when I'm in the kayak. And now that might mean that I'm taking rubber boots with me on the water, getting out, because sometimes you can't get all the way to dry land. You're going to have to get out. It gets muddy. It gets really shallow. Walking it over to the bank, I might put my Kinetrex on after that and, and take off up in the hills, just depending on where I'm at. But just anything to prevent myself from getting soaking wet and being loud. And uh, the life jacket. I've fallen in two times uh, in the past, and I can't tell you how important that is if anybody's listening. You, I talked a little bit this on this at the Mobile Hunter Expo last year. And the number one thing, man, is safety, especially it gets cold outside. You, you think that you're going to fall in that water, and you, oh, I'm just going to swim over to the bank and make a phone call or go to a house, and, and that cold water is just going to kill your body no matter how good a shape you're in. So safety is number one thing. I don't go on water that I normally – don't trust water that can come up unexpectedly. I really like to go in in the daylight at least once before I just take off somewhere in the dark for the first time also. I was going to ask you that, you know, going in blind hiking is bad enough. You run into a cliff on a ridge or, oh. you know, a bunch of down trees, a bunch of deadfall in a drainage and you're hopping over it in the middle of the night and you have, you know, you're just irritated. But I can imagine that going in blind on a kayak would be a whole different level because of fallen trees and anything like else. Especially current dude i mean years ago me and my buddy went kayaking just for fun and and um we come up on this fallen tree across this creek and the water had come up and i was nimble enough to kind of let my body go underneath a bit but he caught his shoulder and, and that water just ripped him out of that kayak and flipped the kayak and you know that was a broad daylight imagine doing that with you know your bow that you've got thousands of dollars invested in a backpack binoculars your cell phone and most of the time you're doing this, it's cold outside. It ain't it ain't no joke. You got to be careful. Are you strapping your gear to the kayak like your bow? It sits in your holder. Do you have straps that hold it on in case you do flip or anything happens? No, that thing grips that thing so hard that sometimes it's kind of hard for me to get it off as it is. I got but you. as far as like my backpack and things like that, it's all just sitting in the back. So if it goes, it goes. On the safety topic, what about lights? Because you're you're traveling in the dark a lot. So what are you doing for lights? My main source of light when I'm kayaking is my headlamp. And something to think about is maybe like a little 12-volt light. I've got one. I do have one on the front of my kayak. It doesn't do me a ton of good because a lot of times, some of the places I go, I kind of keep my lights off just because nine times out of 10, especially when it starts getting a little bit colder, the water is actually putting off fog. And you would be surprised how much better that you can see with your lights off once your eyes adjust versus when you've got your lights on. I can see things real close to the water. Like if I'm hitting a couple logs and whatnot, I can I can kind of look down and know what to look for. But sometimes them lights don't do you any good. Red light cuts through that much better for for the record. You can't see as far, but you can you can see, you know, 10 to 15 feet in front of your kayak, which is normally enough to prepare yourself for whatever's coming or or get out of the way. Yeah. And so are you paying a lot of attention to weather too when you're going into these spots where like you want to make sure that you don't have a rainstorm coming in or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched the hunt of my Indiana buck from 2021, but um, it was pouring rain that morning like it is right now. You can probably hear the thunder in the background, um, but it was raining super hard. So I hit the snooze button a couple of times, got up, went to McDonald's, grabbed some coffee. It stopped raining about 10 minutes before I parked the truck, put my kayak in the creek where I always do, paddled in about mile, mile and a quarter, whatever it was. And I got out pulled the kayak up on this little itty bitty like little sandbar walked back in there killed the deer two hours after daylight gutted him dragged him went back to get the kayak and it was gone i had crossed a ditch on the way in that was like right at the top of my boots and i was like whoa that was close you know and then i come out and i'm like where the hell did i cross you know i can't find where i crossed because i, I keep getting real close to the top of my boots well it hit me the water had come up i started panicking and like i said when i got back to where my kayak should have been, it was gone. And it was actually all the way down past where I parked my truck and another quarter of a mile past the bridge there. So I almost lost my entire kayak. 
Wow. Now, have you started tying it up or anything now? Yeah, that's a that's a funny story. I've I've learned my lesson and, and it gets tied off now everywhere I go. Yeah, that's a, that's a great lesson learned right there. And that's a good tip for people. You know, I probably wouldn't have thought of that right off the bat, but it makes a lot of sense now. I mean, that's a that's a huge thing. That can be a big safety factor too. Would you say you're using kayak access more for rut situations than you would most other times of the year? I'd say, yeah, I would. Early season, it just, it, it seems like the field situations and whatnot never give me that opportunity to put a kayak in and, and sneak in. And it does out of state every now and then, but as far as my main areas that I hit, I'm normally just walking in, but the, you know, later in September, mid October from the, you know, till the end of the year, till it gets to where most of that stuff is freezing up. I mean, I'm in my kayak. I would say 75% of the time. You mentioned earlier about not running your headlamp very much. That's just to not spook the deer, right? You're just trying to be as stealthy as possible getting in there. Yes and no. It might be a subconscious thing because how many times you, you drive up on a deer in the headlights and he just sits there versus, you know, in the plain dark, I mean, they can see you. I mean, they can still see you. My, my Kentucky buck from 2021 was actually betting on a knob watching me paddle in morning and night and moving off. I mean, I had trail cam confirmation of him doing that. Not using a light most of the time is just to keep from people seeing me and the fog. Um, I'm, there's a spot that I go in every time and I'm, I'm always so worried somebody's going to see me, but I kill that headlamp and just pray they just keep going. <laughs> Would you say that the best areas that you have for access, and this is just me formulating this thing in my head, but I would assume like not doing this, that if you kayak into a spot and then you put boots on the ground for a mile, I almost feel like that kayak access probably isn't as effective. What I envision for me for kayak access would be kayaking up a little river or a stream and landing the kayak and then being set up very close to the edge of the water. That way I'm, you know, my access is bulletproof. I can get in and out of there multiple times. I'm not leaving a bunch of scent. The river's pulling my thermals back towards it a lot of times. Is that where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself like landing and then hiking quite a bit, or do you find yourself setting up relatively close to that kayak? I find myself doing both, but without a doubt, being able to get out of your kayak and stay close to that water is the best possible option or keep yourself in water, so to speak. You know what I mean? A lot of times I am docking that kayak and I'm, you know, hiking in quite a bit and it's, it's just to save my legs. You know what I mean? The spot that I talk about in Indiana, you know, I, I go if the, it depends on the water levels, but most of the time I can kayak in almost all the way to where I want to get out of the kayak and get up a tree. Um, but sometimes you can't. And from that point, I've got a couple ditches that I keep myself in to keep the deer from seeing me. Um, I stay in the water to help with whatever scent issues that I can. And from that ditch, I can jump right into a slough with water in it and I can, I can follow it like the day I killed that deer out of the boat in the ditch out of the ditch, into the slough, followed the slough till I picked out a tree. I climbed the tree with the sun at my back, the water at my back and the wind in my face. And it was, I thought it was bulletproof, but the deer literally ran to the base of my tree and, and caught me. But I ended up still getting an arrow in him. You probably learned quite a bit about thermals around water with doing that throughout the years. Yeah. I just want to cover some things that you've learned about thermals and scent near that water, because that's Something that I'm trying to wrap my head around, and I feel like I have a couple setups that I understand, but overall, I feel like there's a lot left for me to learn there. So what are some things that you've learned about scent and thermals near water that you could share with everybody? If you've got a good steady wind, like I would say seven, eight plus mile an hour wind, sometimes that can throw a loop in some things. But if you've got that calmer wind, not only is it going to pull down to that water, almost every single time. But if you can put the sun with that water behind you or whatever the setup may be, it's almost always going to pull that way. And to add to that, if you're hunting, say a river or creek or some moving water, moving water, that right there is the money. If you can get close to that moving water, I mean, it's not only pulling your scent down to it, but it's, I mean, it's gone, like washed on down the creek. Have you ever verified that with milkweed? Like, do you throw milkweed and watch it actually travel with the pace of the water? I do. And it seems it's, like it's pretty steady in most circumstances. I would say as long as you've got steady-ish winds, it, it's almost to a T, 100% going to do that. If you get a little bit of a crosswind and whatnot, it gets a little funky, but it, it always seems to kind of settle and, and follow it eventually anyways. Do you pay any attention to 
what direction you're accessing from. Do you access from upstream versus downstream of where you think the deer are going to be? Does that have any effect on your thought process with access? No, and I'm going to say it's it's most of the time it's because the water, the creeks and ditches and, and whatnot that I use, I feel like everything is staying down in there with me until I get right where I want to be anyways. So upstream, downstream, it normally doesn't pay any, I don't pay any attention to things like that. Say that you're hunting water access and you know of a bedding area and the wind is blowing from the water towards that bedding area. I guess you wouldn't be in there anyways because the wind's blowing the wrong direction. But where I was going with that is if you had a crosswind to the water that you were accessing on, like to say the stream runs north-south, the bedding area is on the east side of the stream and you have a west wind. Would you think at all that if you had a west wind and you accessed from upstream to where the water is draining down towards the deer, that when your scent profile that's on the water hits that crosswind, do you think it could possibly blow that deer out? Uh, there's always that chance. I got you. Um, I'm just a super aggressive hunter when it comes to things like that. Maybe not as much early season as I am late season, but there's definitely that chance. And you're just never going to know if you just didn't see the deer or you blew them out or what. So it's just one of the things you got to juggle in there and decide if, if you're going to take that shot or not. It's a mystery to me, man. I've been busted by creeks and streams that were not accessible by kayak or anything, but like hiking up through them or setting close to them. I've had deer just come downstream and scent check me. And I'm like, why are you there? Like, what are you doing down there? And I know exactly what they're doing. They're just, they know that scent profile is going to be on the water. If anything in that system is up the drainage, up in elevation from them, they just use it to their advantage, but learning, but cool, Jacob, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. I think that there is a ton to take away here. We kind of covered two polar opposite segments, but it's, it's time relevant for both things because people are going to be hunting bean fields in early season. And there's a lot of guys, including myself, that are trying to figure out this water access thing and now's the perfect time. We still got a couple months to play around with gear and testing and get the setup that you need and get on Google earth and find those access spots. Like Jacob said, and where can people find out more about you? I'd say the best place to go. If you, if you want to get to know me and then watch a couple videos, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is do three outdoors. Um, it's growing very quickly. Um, especially the last couple of weeks, it's kind of alarming. Um, but yeah, I've got over a hundred videos on there. If anybody wants to check those out, I'm a real down to earth guy. Like I said, I'll, I'll shoot the biggest deer I can, but I'm not too good to shoot a small deer. Um, been filming my hunts for years now, and most of it's been done with my cell phone and a GoPro. So the quality isn't there, but the down to earth hunting, like everybody else kind of thing is there. So people can relate to it. Anyways, that's where you can find me. And if, if you want to subscribe, you can. If you want to leave me a dirty comment, knock yourself out. And on Instagram, you're DO3 Outdoors as well, right? Yeah, I just changed that, actually. That's what I changed it to. It was just my name. So I figured people might be searching there. So I just changed it. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Well, hey, Jacob, thank you again for coming on. We're going to have to have you on after you kill a uh, early season Tennessee giant. And we'll tell the story. Okay. Call me in 57 days. It sounds good, brother. Talk soon. <laughs> See ya. All right, everybody. That is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next week. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.